0: So, Dag, were you able to find a parking place in Dana Point? <laughs> 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 of course. You yeah, had a nice walk home then. Um, Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of Sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped in Rephidim, But there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? Why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children and our livestock, with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord. What should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock, as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Moses named the place Massah, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? Have you ever wondered why the fastest speed limits in California and Arizona highways are those freeways that run through the desert? Probably not. <clears throat> but most travelers want to get to the desert as quickly as possible. And so they raise the speed limit to allow us to do that. That was the hardest part of driving to Arizona every year, to, uh, to Williams, where my dad directed summer camp. and. Um, I would remind my children when we drove through the desert, back in my day when we did this, we didn't have air conditioning. We did have the invisible boundaries, the three uh, older siblings, the three of us sitting in the back seat. Dad, Jeff's getting on my side of the wall. Um, But then our parents going through Arizona, and we're all complaining, uh, reminded us of the covered wagon and horses, uh, which they didn't actually have to ride through the desert. But nevertheless, uh, it was worse then than it is today. We also learned that high temperatures make for short fuses. There's just something about the heat that makes people irritable and edgy and ready to snap at each other. And I bring this up so that we can have some sympathy for the people of Israel in the wilderness. And we think, you know what? It probably was pretty miserable just day to day, You know, let alone uh, the hardships that come up for them one after another. But their worst times came to them when they lost sight of God. In some ways, our spiritual journey parallels their journey. The Apostle Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians. And that's the approach that we're going to take to uh, chapter 17 today. Um, In their journey, in these two stories in chapter 17, um, we see two common themes of the spiritual journey. One is going through periods of dryness, which you're going to have in the desert. And the other is when we come under attack. All of us are going to go through periods of dryness. And if you say, oh, not me, then share it. Come on, you know, you're hogging the faucet or something. Uh, move from the drinking fountain let someone else get in there. Um, or, or else we don't believe you. Um, but uh, we also will come under attack. You're thinking, spiritual warfare, yes. Not necessarily. Sometimes it's it's so-called friendly fire, uh, collateral damage. You know, friendly fire, that's not really all that friendly. Anyway, uh, Israel's on the move again at the Lord's command. Literally, a command means mouth. And I like that because to me it feels more direct and intimate that um, God's mouth is close as he speaks to me. I can almost feel his breath on my cheek, as it were. I mean, it's it's nicer to be nudged with a gentle voice. Come on, time to get up. You know, rather than the command. Get going, <laughs> you lazy whatever. Um, they are constantly moving from place to place. Um, they're moving from more than they're moving to. In other words, their destination is still some way off. And, and the tragedy in the wilderness is that that de- destination is flexible. Um, they could have made the journey in two weeks. It took them 40 years. You know, it's like dad saying, okay, if your kids are going to make that much noise in the back seat, I'm going to drive 25 miles an hour. You know, it's like oh, you know, let's be really, really good on our best behavior, wear halos, and everything. Um, but each place that they they come to is a springboard for moving on, and they're moving on, and they're moving on, and they're moving on. Life with God is never static, and that's where we we um, come to the prayer that Jim prayed this morning. You know, would that God were stable and predictable and um, always did the same things every single day, then we would know what to expect. Uh, But life with God is never like that. Uh, Paul describes our life with God like living in tents. You know, he could have said um, hotels, but there weren't that many. So when they traveled long distances, it was a tent. Um, And when, when you're in a tent, You're not thinking about being anywhere forever. This is temporary shelter. And uh, the book of Hebrews says that we have no permanent residence. Um, What address are you going to use if you don't have a permanent residence? Constantly moving. It's like standing. Ankle deep in the ocean. You know what I mean? When the water's moving in and out and it is uh, you know, the sand underneath your feet is constantly being washed away. So you have to keep moving. Otherwise you're gonna fall. We live close to the beach. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> okay, good. I hope so. And if you've never done this, wow, you know, you're missing the second most fun thing next to surfing we're not in heaven yet. But it isn't bad to constantly be moving if going from place to place is like, as Paul describes, being transformed from glory to glory. And that's how the spiritual journey is supposed to proceed. That, yes, I've learned some things this year. And now I'm being thrown into the next year. And I'm going to learn more things. And there'll be more growth. And I'll become a better person. And it's this constant transformation process. Um, And sometimes I think, oh, I've, I've lost ground this last month the last six months. Um, I've gone backwards instead of forwards. But then when it's all said and done, I can see, no, I've still made progress. And I, I know things I'm never going to do again. And um, I've, I've learned th- you know, where certain decisions get me. And so it is a constant transformation upward as we, as we keep ourselves in the life and love of God. God meets us where he finds us in the moment and then he guides us from this moment to the next we're going from this moment we we did not we did not come here to stay we we came here to get ready for the next time we get bounced out you know i was thinking this last week uh, one day it was in my meditation that uh When we talk about being in the present moment, uh, some people say, yeah, well, the present moment is now. It's now. Oh, it's now. Oh, it's now. And it's like you you can chop up uh, these moments, but it's more like being in the flow of moment to moment. And when you can catch that, then it isn't so choppy and it isn't trying to constantly come back. It's more like breathing in the flow of the ongoing moment. Now, uh, we approach the eternal now. Well, the first problem that they run into in this new place, and by the way, uh, Refidim means refresh. So they came to a place where they kind of find refreshment. But the first problem they run into here is there's no water. Uh, Of course, they complain. Their complaint is then routed to two different departments. They didn't know that was going to happen. They're just yelling at Moses, but he says, Why are you disputing with me? The Hebrew word sometimes suggests uh, an actual legal case, you know, uh, filing a suit against someone. Why are you disputing with me, and why are you testing Yahweh? So Moses gets the, the complaint, and Yahweh gets the insult of being tested by them. Okay. Test, sometimes translated um, tempt. Um, but when you think of tempt, in this regard, you have to think of attempt. When you attempt something, what are we attempting to do? Um, suppose you inherit a, inherited a ring from a dear old aunt who always wore lots of you know costume jewelry, and she left you this one special ring, And it looks like it's got a diamond in it. So you decide, I'm going to take this to a jeweler and find out if this diamond is real. And the jeweler will have tests that he can perform on the diamond to find out if it's the real thing. God has already tested Israel in the wilderness a couple of times in uh, chapter 15. He tested their faithfulness. In chapter 16, he tested them to see whether or not they would follow his instructions. He's testing them. He's testing them to find out if they're the real deal. God tests us. God tested Abraham. Now, God does not learn anything from testing me. Right? Because he already knows. Okay? But when tested, I learned something about myself. It's not so bad to fail a test when God tests us. I mean, the disciples did time after time. And there's a lot that we know about Jesus and about God we would not have known if they didn't miss the point so many times because Jesus has to stop and explain and his explanations are our life's teaching and it's not so bad when we miss the point it's far more important for me to learn how weak I am than how strong I am Um, I, I hope I know some of my strengths but Knowing my weaknesses is far more important, especially if I assume that I'm covered in those areas, that I'm strong. Oh, yeah, I could take that if that happened to me. No problem. I'd smile all the way through. Perhaps not. But now, what's happening here is they turn around and they're testing God. You see how they they test him with with this question, um, is the Lord with us or not? If, if God was asking them, are you with me? Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to follow my instructions? Are you with me? They're asking, is God with us? And later, this is actually going to be written into the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says, you must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Massah. No more testing God. This, in fact, was one of the verses that Jesus quoted Satan to ward off temptation. You shall not test the Lord your God. Hey, Jesus, why don't you do this? It's okay to pray. It's okay to beg. It's okay to voice your frustration. If you want to know, well, it's not a good question to ask, but if you want to know how much you can get away with in prayer, read the Psalms. You know, they, they got away with quite a bit. How long, O oh Lord? Will you reject us forever? You know, what a wrong thing to say. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Comes from Psalm 92. Jesus was quoting the Psalm on the cross. So we have a lot of latitude for voicing our complaints, uh, expressing our frustration or disappointment, whatever, our, our sense of abandonment. But um, there is a line drawn here. We can lose sight of who God is. And when that happens, everything starts to fall apart. Um, I think that Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof is an excellent example of, of the right attitude, that he complains, oh, to be sure. And he's going through some very hard things as the Bolshevik revolution rolls on and Jews are more and more herded and um, either sent off to live someplace else or put into, or sent to Siberia. And, uh, and so he has a lot to complain about, but he always directs it to God. And he always has this understanding that God is there and that even if he has fun, with his friend Tevya, once in a while, making things hard for him, that everything's all right because God is there. And, and a person like that can say just about anything they want to God. And God easily absorbs it and continues to be God, continues to go on with his agenda, even if it's painful for us. The language in verse 3 is a little bit odd, and I like it for that reason. Um, tormented by thirst, they continue to argue with Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? And then they say, literally, are you trying to kill me, my children and my livestock? It's not us and our, it's me and my isn't that weird? Because this is a community, and they're talking with uh, the voice of first person singular. But see, th- this is the beautiful thing. In verse 2 and verse 3, they're called the people. And this is what they're becoming. They're becoming the people. And now they have one voice. As the people, they're learning how to move together, how to uh, work in unison. Well, uh, OK, that's cool. But, in fact, we'd say that's healthy development, that they're growing that direction. But it also has a risk. Uh, Having one voice, they can either move toward God or away from God. They can either praise him or they can test him. And so in unison now, they're moving away from God. And um, God had brought them out of Egypt, but they had not... Gotten Egypt out of themselves, and uh, you know that's always uh, that's always the the risk with with our spiritual journey. God has brought me out of that old life I lived, but the old life isn't completely out of me. When Jesus prayed for his disciples, uh, he's, that even though they're in the world, that they'd not be of the world. It's something like that that he's going after. Um, They have to be in the world. Don't let the world get inside of them. Moses took their dispute, their complaint to God. He says, Lord, what am I going to do to these people? They're ready to stone me, which I think is probably an exaggeration, like their own exaggeration. You know, complaining uh, has this tendency to give vent to exaggeration. Once you you get going, it builds up momentum. from the time my grandson was about three and a half years old, and he, he only stopped maybe when he was almost five, when he'd get frustrated, which is pretty frequently actually, um, uh, if he didn't like the way things were going, he thought the home should be run differently and he should be allowed to play video games for as long as he wanted, whatever it was, when he'd get frustrated, he would storm out of the room talking the whole way. And sometimes he'd go up to his dad's room and lie on the bed talking the whole time. Or he'd just go sit on the stairs talking the whole time. And I loved to just get where he couldn't see me, but I could hear him. Oh, they don't ever listen to me. And they don't know what I want. And they, they won't do what I want. I never get what I ever get what I want. And <laughs> Grandpa's so mean. And I just loved listening to all this stuff. <laughs> and it just went all over the place. And, and so the people are doing this. And now Moses is doing this. And God is so patient. Uh, he, gives him his, his, he gives Moses instructions. It's all he does. He doesn't even say, calm down. It's, he just says, walk out in front of them. That's what leaders do. They take point. They walk out in front. Take your staff in hand. Um, New Living Translation doesn't include in hand, but it's there in the Hebrew, trust me. Um, And both the staff and the hand are key words in in these two stories. In fact, um, they link the two stories together. They're one of the links. Um, The other link is both incidences happened at Rephidim. But uh, strike the rock. I hope you got that, strike the rock. Only for this reason. Um, A couple months ago, uh, my cousin's wife sent me A newspaper clipping, it was a correction. It goes like this. In a video on WaterGen's Limited's website, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that Moses brought water from a rock. In some editions Wednesday, a U.S. news article about the Environmental Protection Agency signing a deal to test technology from the Israeli company incorrectly gave the quote as... Brought water from Iraq. <laughs> Iraq. A rock. Okay, so it's not Iraq, uh, it's rock. Water's gushing from this rock now. There's plenty for everyone. Problem solved. And now Moses names this site. He gives it two names uh, Masah and Meribah. He names their complaint, dispute and test. And why does he do this? Why does he he have to give the rock a name? Why does he have to give their complaints a name, or or memorialize them in this way? Is the Lord with us or not? Well, that's how we feel when, when we're tested. And the people aren't to forget this incident. It's named now. I mean, naming it gives it a, a certain kind of significance or identity. And that's easier to get a hold of than just a memory that's cut off from other associations. This gives it more of a permanence in their minds and definitely in their history. As I said, in Deuteronomy, 40 years later, Moses will reflect back on this and say, hey, and you're not to test God like you did back at Massah. And all he has to do is say Masah, and they go, oh yeah, Masah, Meribah, ooh, bad news. When I'm going through a dry spell, is the Lord here or not? Do you ever wonder that? Yeah, of course we do. Does he hear me? Does he know? Is he he here? Is he even here? Where's the evidence? Is the Lord here or not? And God is here. Whether or not we feel him, whether or not we have water to drink, he's still here. Whether or not he's fixed everything already or supplied all our needs, he is here. It's not something he wants us to question because repeatedly through the scriptures, God says, I am with you. Don't be afraid, I'm with you. Go forward, I'm with you. I I really would like to brand that on my brain. In verse 8, okay, let's read through this. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, Choose the men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow, I will stand at the top of the hill, holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms, or literally hands, soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said, they have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. In in Deuteronomy, and I I want to read this because it sheds some light on what's happening here. It says... Moses says, never forget what the Amalekites did to you that you came from Egypt. They attacked you when you were exhausted and weary, and they struck down those who were straggling behind. They had no fear of God. In other words, they were so merciless, so so godless, that they had no problem ambushing the weakest, most exhausted people who were straggling behind the, the bulk of Israel. and and in attacking those people they they, uh, demonstrated their cruelty okay again in this story it's the staff in Moses hand that's critical to the outcome Um, in verse five God had referred to it as your staff take your staff go to the rock strike the rock here Moses refers to it as the staff of God so God says it's yours and Moses says it's his this alternating of what belongs to Moses and what belongs to God or what comes from Moses what comes from God is a characteristic of the Torah that is the first five books of the Bible it's the law of Moses no it's the law of Yahweh it's the command of Moses no it's the command of God and uh, and it becomes an issue. I mean, generally what we get is that what we hear from Moses has come from God, so the two can be associated. But it becomes an issue in chapter 32 when God's really upset with the people and he he says, "Moses, you lead your people who you brought out of Egypt. I'm not going with you anymore. I'll send my angel. I'm not I can't be I just can't be with you anymore." And Moses in his response says, And don't forget, these are your people who you brought out of Egypt. So so now it's an issue. Up until now, it's not an issue. Now it's an issue. Um, Your people, you brought them out. This battle, God does not fight. Remember the Egyptians at the Red Sea? Just stand still and watch the salvation of God. You won't need to fight. But here, he lets them enter the battlefield. He does not win the fight for him. But he's with them in the fight, so they can't lose. There's some kind of connection between Moses holding up the staff and Israel getting the upper hand in the battle and dropping the staff and Israel starting to fall away from the enemy. The staff through the the plagues uh, in Egypt and the Red Sea has been established as an instrument of God that he uses to reveal his power. It marks the moment when a plague begins, marks the moment when the Red Sea splits apart, when it goes back together again. It marks the moments when God broke into the world So it's easy for us to think of this as magic, you know, like, oh, uh, Moses has the the wand that he waves and then magic happens. But it's not like that. Uh, It's just an indicator for people to be able to see God's at work. This is God. It's not coincidence because it happened exactly when Moses struck the rock. It happens exactly when he lifts his hands, lifts the staff up into the air. And and holding it like this makes it like a banner. Um, It's like when armies would carry a flag or an ensign into battle. It's uh, a symbol of what they're fighting for. It's a symbol of the strength of their cause. Or in ancient times, it was some kind of symbol of their deity. And uh, here the the staff acts something like a, a banner. And uh, the staff and, and God's power represented by it is strongly contrasted by the weakness of the man who holds it. Moses' arms, his, his hands get heavy. Oh, I can't keep doing this. And he needs help to hold it up so that they can continue to win until sundown when no one can fight anymore. And... This is so often the case, the very weak person with something much more powerful than himself or herself. And, and John could write to his friends in Ephesus and say, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. And greater is he that is in you than you. And that's always there. So. I can crumble I can fall apart I can collapse but within me God will never collapse he is never subject to my weaknesses and he's never limited to my weaknesses or my strengths Moses builds an altar and he gives it a name also uh, Yahweh Nisi Uh, the Lord is my banner now again the purpose of naming something is to give it give it an identity so this is a the second or third time that he does this in the chapter and the altar enshrines the memory of what happened there so there are these enduring names Massah Meribah Yahweh Nisi by contrast God is going to wipe out the name of Amalek NLT says memory but it's literally name so as Moses is naming the things that God has done for his people or the things that they've done there's a name that's going to disappear from the, the world. Uh, a people who will lose their identity. They'll lose themselves. Amalek will be lost to the world. When was the last time you met someone from Amalek? Or, or do you have any friends who are Amalekites? <laughs> you know, no DNA testing today is is going to relate you to an Amalekite. Um, that is, you know, not within the last uh, 3,000 years. All right, so. Uh, I, I don't know. I just I just think that this is lovely, how names are emerging and the name is being erased. Um, OK, so there we are. Uh, I think I'm done, basically. Uh, <laughs> I, OK, we, we can agree. Desert travel is no fun. Right? Anybody love driving to the desert? <laughs> OK, a couple. Yeah, no, you, you've probably lived there. Sometime? No? Yes? You almost have to have. um, I lived in 29 Palms for a year. And I can see beauty in the desert. I can point it out. And no one one else can see it. I can point it out. I can see it. No one else sees it. Um, I'll tell you, we had some sunsets that have never been rivaled in Dana Point. Uh, We've had glorious sunsets here. But I mean, when you can see the sky stretching for 100 miles. When you can see the shadow of clouds on the desert floor moving slowly, there's just something very awe-inspiring about it. Long shadows in the morning as the sun rises, long shadows in the evening as the sun sets. Um, Plus, I lived close to the Joshua Tree National Monument. Yeah, So there's a lot of uh, scrambling over rocks there during the time. In fact, I was there most every day. Um, If you wanted counseling, that's where you'd have to go. And there are many lessons in trusting God. I made sure of that. (laughs) Traveling through the desert, for most of us, is no fun. But in the first story, Israel made it worse than it had to be, worse than it was. They created an unnecessary tension with God. Not only did they have enough problems already, But they strained a relationship which was their sole hope of ever surviving this. When Paul looked back at this story, what did he see? I don't want you to dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. And all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Paul could see something in the story I don't think we would have ever seen. If we had read it a 100 times, I don't think we would have seen that rock as being Christ and the water, the living water flowing from him. Um, and of course, he, he is spiritualizing here. And he, he knew he was doing that. And he was doing it on the basis of a good Jewish tradition. He goes on to say, all of them enjoyed all these things, yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I intentionally try to lighten that up because um, because God has given me a velvet glove um, and no, no longer the iron fist. There's a time when that would have been my whole sermon. Uh, so God forgive me. Um, we can have access to unlimited spiritual resources and still come apart. So falter um, I feel challenged by paul 's observation i don 't feel condemned that 's how I used to feel i don 't feel condemned don 't feel condemned, thus saith Chuck, be not condemned <laughs> right not not by this. Um, I feel challenged to pay attention to the presence of Jesus in my life and what that means. Because I'm not always sure what it means. But to know when I'm spiritually thirsty that I can go to a rock and drink and receive living water, and, and to know I can do that anytime and anywhere, that the rock travels with me, literally follows me. Like when Jesus said to the, the fishers on the seashore, follow me, same word. Only now it's him following us. And so wherever I am, there's that, that source of living water. And, and uh, I want to be with this. Um, on Fridays, I take my grandson Caleb to a, a karate class, which <laughs> is hysterical. But, um, you know, in karate, you have to perform sets of maneuvers blocks, punches, kicks, and you have to do them in a certain order. And it's very much choreographed, and, and it's, it's actually a very beautiful dance. Uh, not as beautiful as Tai Chi or, or something where you will move s- slowly, but it's still beautiful to watch. But when the students are testing for their next belt, you can see the concentration in their faces as they're remembering what what move now, what, what block, what punch. and um, the whole time they have this focused concentration, and what this means is that they have years more practice to go. And the reason you practice the same moves over and over and over is so that they become automatic. Raul well, Reese was a black belt uh, competition. Was in a black belt competition who got first place. He taught. Roddy for years. One night, I was sitting next to him at a dinner. Uh, we're, we're talking. I, I love Raleigh. He's a great guy. And just goofing off, I went like this. He had my arm bent and twisted into a pretzel shape that was so painful. And he was smiling the whole time. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is what you do. And I said, I'm not looking for lessons. I was looking to tease you. You know, this, you're taking this serious. And he wasn't. Um, But it was automatic to him. He didn't even need to think. When you have to concentrate this heart, you've got a lot of practice left. And so for me, I want to keep coming back to that rock. I want to remind myself. I want to remember to breathe and say the name of Jesus and concentrate on his presence. See, I have to concentrate because it's not automatic yet. I want to. I want to breathe and concentrate on Jesus and his presence here now until it becomes so automatic that I no longer have to remind myself. And I no longer have to question or grope for his presence with me. It's just there. Would you stand, please? May the Lord God bless us, take away all evil, get us out of here safely without running over any bicyclist, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.